Hi everyone, this is Divya here and you're listening to Articulate, my podcast that is all about making the art world more accessible. I use this medium to get to know artists I admire and whose practice I find interesting and thought-provoking. I'm an artist myself and I consider these conversations as a very integral part of my practice and they form a kind of archive that I have curated in a sense. The one hour that I spend talking with my guests allows me to be more connected, less anxious and more gentle towards my own work. Humour is a powerful tool in challenging society's norms and attitudes. In philosophy, the absurd refers to the conflict between human tendency to seek inherent value and meaning in life and their inability to find any. Absurdity in art shows an inverted and contradictory version of reality that juxtaposes multiple realities in order to invite people to look at life differently. It can be used as a tool to help explore personal identity and as a way of creating something different and surprising in a visual culture that is bombarding us with stimulus from all sides. The French-German Dadaist and pioneer of abstract sculpture, Jean Arp, said that the Dada movement that was born a hundred years ago as an absurdist reaction to the atrocities of the First World War aimed to destroy the reasonable deceptions of man and recover the natural and unreasonable order. There are plenty of isms today that need destroying, division, paranoia and conspiracy theories to name a few. So when we find no reason on Twitter or no joy in the news, we should turn towards the restorative power of chaos if that is a version seen only through the eyes of um, artists today. My guest today is one such artist. I present to you the amazing Rebecca Rebecca Moss. Rebecca is an artist based in Essex and East London. She's known for work that draws on a mixture of slapstick and deadpan comedy and the absurd. Whether jumping in a puddle on a pogo stick, constructing a smile machine in her back garden, or ending up stranded at sea, Much of Rebecca's work is interested in a physical interaction with the natural world, setting up a situation and allowing it to unfold. She says her practice critically examines heroic narratives in relation to to landscape, taking the form of these site interventions. She's interested in the politics of anti-monumental gestures and references slapstick comedy to tear down heroic figures. She's interested in how awkwardness can invite empathy and how a fallible, open subject could, could suggest a resistant position against powerful systems. Her work responds to landscapes, including wild, rural and urban, from a feminist perspective. Rebecca has a BA in painting from the Camberwell College of Art and an MA in sculpture from the Royal College of Art. She has also done a constellations program exploring the expanded field of public art with up projects, flat time house, and the Liverpool Biennale. She has been nominated for a number of prestigious awards and commissions. Some of them include the Thames Estuary um, Festival Commission Psychogeographic Award by Metal Culture UK, the nomination for the Arts Foundation Award for Visual Art in 2021, nomination to propose an artwork for the Highline Plinth in New York in 2020, nomination for the Paul Hamlin Award in 2019, and in 2019, she was the Peer Notices Commission Artist in the Peer Gallery, Hoxton, London. So, hi, Rebecca. I hope I've done justice to this amazing practice of yours. Uh, thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast. I'm really, really uh, excited and I'd love, um, I'm so looking forward to, you know, having this um, recording. So, thank you and welcome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for such a wonderful introduction. That was so lovely. Thanks, Rebecca. So um, let me start. So first of all, um, would you mind telling us a bit about your formative years? And you could have done anything with your kind of uh, intellect. But but when did you realize you wanted to have an art practice, study art in college? I know from your previous interviews, you said you're the the oldest um, amongst your siblings. You have two brothers. So who were your influences? And do you have any artists in the family? So I've always wanted to be an artist. Like if you'd asked sort of four-year-old Rebecca what she wanted to do and be, I'd have said an artist. And I think the reason for that is um, my mum, she left school at the age of 15, but she's always been really interested and excited by art. Mm -hmm. So when I was growing up, she used to do all of these kind of activities with us. So she'd collect 
egg cartons and cardboard and things from around the house and we would make things together um so I had this really kind of amazing start I think an introduction to art which was through her and her kind of love of the subject too um so these are kind of like my formative experiences um art's always had a very important place in my life and I think artists are extremely lucky we always have this kind of world that we can go into and tap into yeah Um, which is a really sort of amazing coping mechanism when things get really difficult in life. And um, I think that I just felt very strongly attached to this as a way forward and what I wanted to do with my life. So it was, yeah, going back to the question with my brothers, I think that humour came into my work actually not, it it was fairly recently, it's not always been there. I've always had a sense of humour and comedy, but... I think my work actually, when I was on my BA at Camberwell, was quite sort of, um, it wasn't, I wouldn't describe it as playful. I'd say it was actually quite sort of serious in its tone. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I I mean, I had an amazing time on my BA at Camberwell. I had, even though I was in the painting department, I had some amazing tutors who were interested in uh, like conceptual art from the 1960s and 70s. And you know performances the camera and and they introduced me to a lot of references from that time so I was really supported in terms of having a more conceptual approach to work um during that time and I think that my interest in landscape is just something that is very sort of I don't know really um it's something that I go for lots of walks. I love, I think, again, like going back to this idea of a coping mechanism, I yeah. think that I go for lots of walks in the landscape and it always makes me feel better. So I'm always just kind of um, seeking out the things that feel the most meaningful to me. And having a physical interaction with the landscape comes very naturally and is something that I wanted to kind of push further and explore. And it's good that you kind of explore, like you went ahead, for, pushed it further, um, you're interested in the landscape, you find comfort in it and you decided to kind of um, weave it into your practice. That's amazing. You very effectively use humour as a vehicle for your philosophical explorations which we just talked about uh, in the connection between landscape and current feminist thinking. Before we start talking about the work per se, would you tell us um, how, I know you just spoke about how you brought humor into your work, but a little more about that. Like I had attended this feminist um, symposium in 2018 in Middlesex University and I heard this Polish um, philosopher called Iwa Majewska and she talked about, um, I did a whole dissertation on that, by the way, <laughs> on using alternative, yeah, alternative ways of protesting by using humor, parody and failure and thereby reevaluating the concept of silly childish failed and weak so um would you agree and are you comfortable with the term activist as part of your practice so i think that's really interesting what you just said there and i'd love to read your dissertation if if i had the opportunity to do sure. that um, yeah. down really up my street um, I think the humour came into my work when I was at the Royal College in particular, or maybe shortly before that, actually. Mm-hmm. Just I was kind of thinking about it a bit before I went there. But I think that one of my main motivations for exploring humour is I'm a very angry person, actually. Um, I'm, a, I'm a furious person about many things. And I think that it kind of really came out a lot when I was at the Royal College for a variety of reasons that maybe we can get into in a bit. But I think that that's sort of um, my motivation for working with that. And I was thinking, again, what we were talking about earlier with my brothers. So you're right, we've got this relationship where it's just relentless kind of taking the mick out of each other, really. I was, I know it's very controversial, really, but I was surrounded by lad humour growing up. So I grew up in Essex and um, like lad culture was really kind of quite big in the 90s and early 2000s. So I grew up in the 90s and early 2000s and I think they were quite formative years. And um, like, you know, my brothers would have all their friends over the house quite often. And I've got a bit of a love-hate relationship with lad humour because a lot of it is very sexist and offensive. Yes. But there's an immediacy and a directness and a playful, 
playfulness to it that I'm really attracted to. Yeah. And, you know, the ability to quick, like quick wittedness, I'm really interested in. Yeah. Um, and being around that, actually being around my brothers always makes me feel better on some level because of this sort of um, an irreverent kind of attitude, I think, to things. What was your second part of the question? You asked me if I consider myself an activist. It's something that I don't have an easy answer for, but it's something that I'm particularly thinking about at the moment. Um, I think that, so being part of the Constellations programme, we've been talking about how artistic practice fits into the wider world and, you know, can art affect social and structural change? And I think these are huge questions I'm kind of processing and thinking through at the moment. Um, I think that I'm very attracted to the idea of making change and I feel a sense of urgency that things need to change. So into an extent, I'd say there's certain aspects of being described as an activist that I'm quite attracted to. But at the same time, I'm also quite attracted to a sense of openness around a gesture that it doesn't only have this one point, like a one-liner, that it has a more speculative kind of function to. So um, it's something that I don't have an easy answer for, but it's something that I'm definitely interested in thinking through and processing for myself at the moment. Yeah, words have this uh, way of kind of pigeonholing you and you probably want to do everything. I mean, apart from you are an activist and a philosopher and an artist, I suppose. Um, <laughs> tell me more about the constellations. It sounds really interesting. I haven't heard of it before. What is this um, program about? So this... Ten of us is a mixture of um, artists and curators and various people involved in the arts who are interested in coming together to talk about socially engaged practice um, and what it really means and its value um, and kind of, yeah, that best practice and the potential of working with other people and in unusual contexts in the public realm. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of what appealed to me about it because alongside my videos I've also found myself being attracted to working with various communities and outside of kind of conventional institutional contexts I found myself becoming increasingly yeah attracted to those ways of working and I wanted to explore it more. It's great that you have something that you can you know uh, study and discuss with other like-minded people that's amazing. It's amazing I have to say I'm really really enjoying it and um it's an incredible group of people like we've had some really honest and frank and quite vulnerable conversations as a group and we've only really just got together so i'm really excited about the next sort of few months where we're going to regularly meet and talk about things okay fantastic because i'm so fascinated with this idea of of being funny and there's such a long history so comedy is all about timing it's about the pauses it's about you know finally the element of surprise and um, of course, with Dada art with, with, and the Marcel Duchamp, and, and they're so timeless and it's still relevant now as it was then. Do you kind of um, look up to certain people or um, do you have anybody that you can mention here? With a lot of Dada artists, a lot of, a lot of the um, reason for working in that way was as a response to fascism. Yeah. And I think I'm quite attracted to this idea of responding to supposed sense with nonsense like demonstrating that sense is subjective um and that it can be kind of recomposed and reconstituted in whatever way we wish so i think that that sort of um yeah that that sort of approach has always appealed to me quite a lot in terms of my comedy sorry in terms of my artistic influences a lot of the time i'd say that it's not necessarily um, art world references that I'm kind of okay. most interested in so like in the 90s there were lots of um, comedies like situation I don't know if it be described as situational comedies but there were lots of comedies that involved pranking the public it was a trigger happy tv jackass and they seem to be on tv all the time um, and they've well, like our TV was always on in our house and these things will quite often be playing so I do wonder if on some level I'm kind of influenced by this idea of this kind of setting up of a situation and allowing something to unfold, unfold yeah. um, so I, I think that that's something that I've been thinking about quite a lot recently is 
a lot of the time I'm in the same position as the audience where even I don't I don't yeah. want them to happen, but even I don't have total control over the way that things will end up. Um and I think that yeah, that's something that I quite enjoy, mm. sort of putting myself into that position as well. Um and I get very excited about that element of surprise or, or disappointment is interesting as well. Mm. It doesn't always have to be, you know, successful in a conventional sense. Um, but also I think it's about a wider philosophy as well in terms of thinking about, you know, this interaction between control and chaos, this situation and the unpredictability of everything that happens around it. And that's kind of emotionally how I feel about life. Um, that there's always this sense of like the unpredictability and the strange coincidences and journeys that kind of life can take you on and, and sort of, it being an interaction between what I can control and what I can't and bringing those two elements together. Yeah. I'd say it's about 50-50 in a way. <laughs> Have you ever tried live uh, performances and, you know, in front of a live audience and seeing how it unfolds or doesn't unfold? Or, or are you yeah. even thinking of doing that? So for me, the context is really important. Um, I definitely consider doing live performances if it felt like there was a reason for doing it. I wouldn't, because I'm never really led by medium. I'm never led by, I never set out to think, right, I want to make a video or I want to make a sculpture. It's always the idea that kind of leads the way. Right. And even though a lot of my work seems to find a form in video because the things that I'm quite often excited by, so time and chance and intervention quite often they find a form within video yeah i definitely think that i'd be up for doing live performances if it felt like there was something if it felt like there was an interesting intervention that i could make within that space so i did do something at jerwood um i think it was about three years ago now where it was a live panel discussion event mm. where we were all talking with our faces through these panels i don't know if you've seen them at like oh, fairgrounds okay. and theme parks yeah. and they've got like, faces cut out and so it was this kind of like surreal panel discussion um, where we were all kind of collectively looking ridiculous. Um, and I was really interested to kind of intervene in a live situation in that way. And that kind of way of working, I think the sort of um, the risk element of a live performance is interesting. But yeah, there would have to be a reason for doing it, I right. think, for me. Cool. And... Um... So I did some reading up um, before, you know, the podcast when I was researching on your work and I found an interesting uh, connection between children's play and what you do. And then there is apparently a, 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 a scientist, a social scientist called Stuart Lester, who's no more now, and his colleague Wendy Russell, who studied how children learn to navigate and make sense of their worlds through play. They qu continuously question materials and bodies. And their intention is not only to understand what is, but also look for more, more than what is given to them by pushing boundaries to create space time that is temporarily better and livelier by going beyond the sensibilities of the real world. So my question is, do you think you're experimenting with a physical comedy with kind of play to where you let situations develop and this could have a vitality in excess of the event and leads to series of possible questions like what does this represent what are the meanings behind the actions movements and uh, materials do you see do i mean do you actually kind of uh, reflect on your videos and and do you want the your audience to actually think about what is she trying to do or just go along with it and laugh and uh, is there a more reflective philosophical angle to uh, your work i mean that's yeah i hope so that's something that i'm always very aware of with my work actually is that it could be read quite superficially mm. and people might like this kind of playful element and actually sometimes within an art world context it has led to my work being dismissed before and really? not really kind of taken seriously because it has this kind of i think a lot of work that deals with humor yeah is has or, or has a playful element to it unfortunately for some reason is not seen as kind of the territory of high art occupying high art or something and um yeah something that i'm very aware of so hopefully people can sort of see the kind of deeper philosophical or emotional kind of things that i'm exploring um i think with the videos there's always an, a sort of 
autobiographical situation, something going on in my life emotionally that I'm trying to kind of tease out. And it, okay. Um, and I think that, yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, actually, they're very specific things in my mind. Um, I, I wouldn't say what it is because I wouldn't want to pin down that situation to other people. But I definitely think that, yeah, there's, I know for myself that like, I can recognise with the different videos, the different things I was feeling at a specific moment. Wow. So, yeah, I think that there's definitely a sense. I, I want people to bring their associations to the objects and the performances within the videos too. Um, but I've always been fascinated by, going back to the Disney, I know it's like a bit of a rubbish example, but like the Disney cartoons, mm. it's like animation and figuring out how different things can be conveyed through pace for example um or movement and these very subtle differences body language can convey a lot some uh, emotionally compared Mm. to to verbal communication i think and i'm also very interested in ballet for that reason it's non-verbal communication um i think that i think that a lot of sexist men don't like funny women Mm. i think when when i'm humorous i'm taking control over my image over my I'm really letting my kind of truest self in in my videos you'll meet my truest self I don't wear lots of makeup for example I'm usually wearing quite androgynous clothes um and I think that a lot of it is about trying to reclaim my body and reclaim the way that I come across and enjoying kind of being ridiculous or ugly or you know, not shying away from those things. There's definitely, I get a huge amount of pleasure out of that. And I know that that's the quality that a lot of other women seem to respond to too. Yeah. I get a lot of enjoyment and pleasure out of seeing women perform in comedy, for example, in like ridiculous ways. And that joy that I see, I feel when I see them, I want other people to feel when they see me performing in that way. And it definitely comes across. It's like you feel free when you, when I, I mean, I feel free when I see your videos and I think wow I mean I probably wouldn't be able to do it but at least vicariously I'm able to kind of experience that kind of freedom for a short while um I think think that sexist people they really want to kind of create a one-dimensional version or two-dimensional version of, of women they want to flatten us into something that's like a kind of palatable image and I'm always trying to kind of show myself in my fullness in a way um, all the things that have been flattened previously I'm trying to let them all out so um how did art college um both Campbell and the RCA help or hinder in the mature maturation of your ideas I know you spoke about Campbell being quite supportive but um was was RCA I've seen some of your videos in from the RCA that are amazing the the one that you dropped from the top of the stairs so (laughs) and also that you know as art funding um has been squeezed overall and with the pandemic it was awful my two years in the RCA was completely online it was Mm -hmm. I I didn't experience it and um and institutions becoming more corporate with a profit motive I think your practice is a great example of someone who is conceptual you don't like I mean it's different self-reflective funny and it's at the same time incredibly successful in what you've achieved in like in such a short while I mean if you see the kind of trajectory of your practice so uh, what do you say (laughs) (laughs) no really so what what, how how do you how would you um what what happened after art school and how did you manage to kind of um get noticed and be picked up and um have all this work in your um, under your belt basically so i would say so the first bit of that question where you mentioned about education i could talk about this for for a long while it's a it's a subject that's very close to my heart um so my experiences on my ba and my ma were very different and the key difference i think was that when i was doing my ba i got a full government grant and like loan for everything that i was doing so i had adequate financial support to be there and when I was there, I was I was there every day. I went to every tutorial, every lecture. I was a student rep. I was I was honestly I was so enthusiastic to be there that I just had a brilliant time and I really got the most out of it. Whereas when I went to the Royal College, there wasn't the financial support that was necessary for me to participate in the ways that I would have liked. 
And I think that the Royal College, unfortunately, is a place that makes me feel very angry. And it might not just be that particular institution. I get the feeling that a lot of art schools are like this now. Um, There needs to be much better financial support for students from low-income backgrounds um, or working-class backgrounds, however you identify. Just There needs to be better financial support because it's a huge barrier that not only affects people that are already on the course but might put people off from applying in the first place like now I don't think that I could afford to do an MA Mm. with it because when I did mine I think like five years ago I think I finished and things have got worse since then yeah um so I was so when I was at the Royal College I was actually very unhappy um I got quite down I felt quite isolated um because I knew that I couldn't keep up with other people I couldn't be as present for no fault of my own Mm. and I was working part-time in a library every single evening between five and nine so that's like the key time to go to lectures so I just it was a really my BA my MA I've got a lot of regrets about my MA for this reason um so something that I'm very passionate about now is that situation being sorted out because I also think then after art school that there's not enough representation of people from a wide variety of backgrounds that we see in exhibitions. Um, And I think it's a situation that just continues. So it is something that I feel very passionate about. And quite honestly, like the things that I've managed to achieve, I think it's been through like an obsessive kind of dogged persistence in, in a way that it shouldn't have had to have been at times. If we get paid adequately for things after we graduate, then Mm. it doesn't have to be in this like insane determination to kind of get things done um but i also think it's really important for artists regardless of their background i think it's important to find something that you really care about that transcends your financial situation and transcends all of this nonsense basically something that you really care about that you want to do with your life because that's the thing that kind of gives you energy to keep going with it Mm. Um, so if you can find that thing if you find your practice that exists outside of institutions, then that's really the thing that will kind of, I think, keep you going, propel you forwards. And don't get me wrong, like I, I would never, I would never want places like the Royal College to close or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. It's just that I think it's a great place that more people should be able to go to. If that makes any sense. And I think people are scared to talk out about it because I think that we are, we're all aware that when we put on our CV, we've gone somewhere like the Royal College, we're all aware that that conveys a certain, I don't know, really, a certain kind of privilege or value or status or whatever. We're all aware of this. So we're, I think on some level, we're all a bit afraid to call out these institutions too, because we all know that we don't want to kind of undermine that. Mm. And that's something that as I'm getting older and like, more like further away from the Royal College I'm becoming more outspoken about because actually I don't think it's a situation that I want to be complicit in I want to change it um but I definitely think that that's a problem as well um for these places but I mean yeah I think that the number of teaching staff that are on precarious contracts is unsustainable too and and outrageous so there's lots of things that need changing so um I also wanted to know how you conceive of new ideas for your interventions. Uh, you have a rich variety of work with your physical activities, obviously, too, your commissioned work, uh, psychogeographic walks, and your sculptural ones. So what is the t- typical trajectory of your idea from start to finish? Like, How long does it take? Where does it come from? Is it from an image and an idea or a book? Or So just um, everybody has their own way of approaching it, so. I think that um, it depends a bit on what I'm, on the context again. So if it's, say, let's say, for example, it's an open call mm. and it requires me to respond to a situation that I've never come across before, a town that I'm not familiar with or something like that, I'll try and research it and get an understanding of kind of what speaks to me about that particular opportunity. Okay. Um, sometimes it could be about trying to sniff out the thing that makes me angry about a situation and then think about humorously how I might respond to that thing. Mm. Um, But with the video, I think the most personal kind of body of work of mine would be the videos because I grew up in Essex. These landscapes that I'm using are very important to me and have been throughout my life. I've got a very intimate and very personal relationship with them. So I think that with those 
works that's when the more kind of emotional autobiographical things come out in this particular landscape and that body of work so I'd say that it's like it's it's about embracing it's about figuring out the situation where there's this element of spontaneity I set up a situation where something can unfold um, and that could be involving the landscape or it could involve working with other people but it's almost like trying to figure out what that proposition is what that thing that interests me is and kind of just going with my um, my instincts with those things, like the things that I'm truly interested in about a place, I think. So um, are you able to pin down what is the, the essence of your practice when people say, do you have an elevator pitch about your practice? Do you know, is, would you say it's, uh, I, I deal with um, um, autobiographical issues with, um, with my videos, or do you talk about the fact that you um connect philosophy and comedy and landscape how do you how do you kind of um talk about your practice because it's quite like you know different each one of your works are quite like um it looks like uh, they're quite made differently the medium is different the way you've approached it is quite different yeah so i would say that it all kind of fits within this ongoing inquiry into feminist responses to landscape so for me that's kind of what i if if we're talking elevator pitches i mean (laughs) i'm not sure what kind of elevator kind of um trip i would be on or who i'd be in this elevator with who'd be interested in hearing about this but yeah i think that it would be feminist responses to landscapes thinking about what i can say I think coming from somewhere like Essex, which is a very specific landscape, which is very marginalised in lots of ways, thinking politically about relationships between humanity and the natural world, although I've become interested in the urban landscape too recently. Um, But yeah, thinking about what I can contribute to this conversation, because there are lots of artists who are interested in working with landscape and you know they're they're kind of my inspirations i love katie patterson's work she's a huge inspiration of mine um there's quite a rich tradition of british artists as well going out into the landscape and responding to it so richard long for example um i think that it's just finding my particular voice within that as a woman from essex um and undermining and dismantling this kind of sense of a dominance in the landscape I've always felt very strongly that I'm more interested in it when I kind of become a part of it and it acts back upon me Um, and that as a philosophical position and a political position as well that everything should be more equivocal and reciprocal rather than always being yeah in control of things and dominating things which I think that's where I think that's where um my interest in climate and landscape and my interest in feminism kind of overlap. I think that the thing that makes me angry is actually the same thing with both of those issues. Mm. And like, I think it's a, a kind of patriarchal relationship to landscape that means that the land and non-human animals are being exploited and abused. Um, and in the same way that women are exploited and abused, wow. I feel like... yeah, well said, well said, yeah. Thank you. I think there's like a hierarchy within patriarchy and that's kind of the thing that i'm interested in completely dismantling wonderful rebecca amazing and oh, thank you <laughs> and tell me about that strand being stranded on the ship that was a residency isn't it and it must have been really scary now looking back you can laugh about it but then at that time how was it and how long were you stranded on the ship and how did you manage a residency on a ship so i was selected for this residency it was called 23 days at sea and the original idea was that i would travel between vancouver and shanghai um, across the pacific by container ship and i would be the only artist on board um and then the following year i'd have an exhibition with the work that i'd made in response to being on the container ship but then one week into being at sea i discovered that hanjin shipping had gone bankrupt which was the shipping company that i was with um so that meant that one week into the residency we found out we were bankrupt and we got stuck at sea because we couldn't afford to pay to get into any ports or dock sorry docks worldwide um we couldn't pay the mooring fees so we ended up dropping anchor off the coast of japan um and we sat on the ship for nearly three weeks so 
without knowing when we were going to get off the ship. So I think in total, I was at sea for about, I think it was 26 days in the end. So not much longer than the original residency. But it was a very different feeling when you're moving in a direction and you know you're going somewhere. It's really different to when you're just sitting there and you've got no idea when you're going to get off the ship. Um, I was very seasick. I completely underestimated actually my ability to tolerate the sea. So I ended up on medication. Fortunately, they had some on board. There's like a little pharmacy thing on board. I was given these really good drugs to kind of deal with seasickness. And I fortunately, they worked really, really well. I took them every day that I was on the ship. Because okay. I got, I think it was like three days into the residency, I felt absolutely atrocious. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. um, never mind, I managed to get the what I needed and I was all right. But yeah, it was a really, um, it was a really intense experience. And it's like one of those kind of life experiences that I don't think I'll ever forget just the absurdity of standing in front of thousands of containers full of cargo that weren't going anywhere and having really dodgy, like bad internet connection and having people from all over the world contacting me into like private messaging me, emailing me, asking for interviews, asking about the status of the containers and how their cargo was doing as if I could somehow like get into (laughs) the containers and check for them. Um, Yeah. And were you the only woman on on board? Was how was did you feel unsafe at any point? There was only a few women on board. So I think it was like three or four of us out of the crew of about twenty five people. I think it was so. It was overwhelmingly men, and there was a bit of a macho vibe. But I was very fortunate because the captain was really like quite feminist and quite sensitive. So he was really into photography, and um, there was. Uh, I don't know the official term for it. She was like training. There's a woman that was training to be a captain. Her name was Cat Cat. Um, and she was training to be a captain. And he was always supporting her and training her. And he wanted the women to be captains. So wow. like, I felt in really safe hands with such a good captain um, who was really like a very kind man. Nice. Um, I was very, very lucky. So I, I didn't feel unsafe or anything like that. I felt more just angry at the, at the kind of economics of the situation and the stupidity of being stuck there without any idea when we were going to get back to land because that was halfway through my master's at the royal college oh, I had yeah. visions because that happened in september and people were saying oh we'll still be sitting here at christmas oh my god and i was thinking like it's even things like when i was there when you're a woman it's even things like you know you get your period every month so it's things things like that gave me anxiety. I was thinking I can't stay on this ship for like months on end if there aren't the things that I need as a woman in order to function. I'm sure I never asked. I didn't. Fortunately, I didn't have to. But it's things like that that kind of like gave me anxiety too. Because you think like I haven't prepared for a trip for three months. I, I've prepared for this 23 days at sea residency. <laughs> so now like, whenever I travel anywhere, I take a huge amount of things with me, actually, like silly amounts of toothpaste, just in case something else happens. Gosh. I mean, you got caught in the crossfires of capitalism. Like, yeah, the systems, usually those systems are invisible. Yeah. And I think this moment where things collapsed, essentially, this huge economic disaster, I think it was the biggest economic disaster to ever hit the shipping industry, it's worth like billions of dollars mm. and usually these ships are just kind of you know invisibly traveling around the oceans around the world all the time and this moment they ground to a halt in a very visible way um and i think that was really interesting for me about making those systems visible so did you actually make work out of your experience or did you make any kind of work over in that train? or were you too stressed out or I think I'm still making work in response to it. To really? I think okay. it's one of those life experiences that you never fully process and kind of feel at peace with because there's always something new to explore. But I did make a video called International Waters, which yeah, was okay. composed of all of the footage that I collected during my time stuck at Anchor because it felt like the experience of being on the ship and talking to people that were on the ship with me and that very human experience felt like a really important element within this kind of wider narrative of I don't know you'd hear in the news about all the economic side of things but actually I was interested in the human aspect of it too so I did make a video work of my footage that my proposal for that residency was that I was going to explore the absurdities of the shipping industry 
it brought me to really kind of stay open to things that are outside of our control as artists as well and just kind of embrace those strange things that life can kind of <laughs> put in our path sometimes mm. um, that's a good life philosophy i think it kind of makes you more resilient <laughs> that was my first time that i'd ever so it was my first time on an airplane in 10 years oh, okay. like flights are expensive yeah. and before that experience i was 25 at the time I hadn't been anywhere. I hadn't been abroad in like 10 years. Um, so that in itself was quite a thing for me to be on a long haul flight and then to be by myself as a woman, like, you know, on the other side of the world. Yeah. It was the whole thing was kind of like a bit of a crash course, really, in like solo traveling. But you realize you can cope with a lot more than lot you think. A lot more than you think. Do. Okay, and what about Beano, the art of breaking bread? That's that did so well. It was uh, quite like a box office hit. I mean, it was continuously <laughs> on Facebook, on um, on the all the meet social media, and so how did that come about? Considering that Somerset uh, House is like one of those august, respected institutions, you kind of look at it from afar and you think, oh, I'm just an emerging artist. How will I ever, you know, get there? And you actually had a proper show there. So how did that happen and how did you manage to get noticed? Yeah, I was thrilled to be a part of that. So um, Andy Holden, who was the curator for that exhibition, I think really achieved something quite remarkable with that show. There was a huge list of artists yeah. involved, um, a real like mix of artists with different approaches. But I think that it was a really interesting show um, and I felt very, very like proud to be in it. Mm. Um, and I knew Andy from something called the Future Generation Art Prize, which was something we were both in. We were both shortlisted for in 2017, yeah. I think it was. Yeah. Um, so we were both shortlisted for that. And from that, we kind of stayed in touch. And I, I support his work. I really think he, you know, he's making some really interesting things. And we just kind of stayed in touch on social media, really. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was really, yeah, really chuffed when he invited me to be a part of that show um, alongside such amazing people. Um, it was a real privilege. And what about Peer? Isn't that the first time that you worked um, over a year with the local community and uh, you were supposed to devise workshops with the ambassadors and critically think about how art on the street interacts with the different members of society and how it can be a vehicle for creative engagement with the public i know they're doing great work and i've had one i did one workshop with them with about 20 of their local people and uh, it was great fun so how, how was your experience and it ended up being longer than a year it ended up being like because because the pandemics sort of hit mm. towards the end of it it was like a year and a half in okay. the end i think at least mm. Um, it was one of the best things I've ever done, I think. Um, so it was, it started in 2019, I think it was. And uh, I came across this opportunity to work with a group of young people ages 16 to 21 from Hoxton, who were gallery assistants at Peer Gallery. Yeah. And they were all from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And um, it really appealed to me because my mum's side of the family are all from that kind of Hoxton area and they're all kind of like working class East Londoners. So I was really, I had this real connection to this area and a real connection to this opportunity. And um, I just expressed my interest in it. I had this idea that I wanted to adopt a zero budget approach mm. because... I was fresh out of the Royal College. I'd been like, as we discussed earlier, we won't get into again. I was quite frustrated by um, the lack of financial support when I was there, but it forced me to be very resourceful yeah. with the things that were around me and to kind of embrace the things that I could kind of access. So, you know, a lot of my props come from fancy dress shops in Romford, which is where I live now. Um, and I think that I really wanted to instill in this group of um young people from the Hoxton area that they should embrace their local circumstances and be proud in that identity um I, I think I was kind of like it's what I wish I could have known at that age and mm. that stage of my life mm. actually I wish that someone had kind of instilled that confidence in me um anyway so I, I proposed this to them and I worked with them and we did some really exciting and amazing things the group was absolutely fantastic it was a really reciprocal relationship where I learned so much from them too um and we had 
two shows. So the first show was um, during the Open House London Architecture Weekend. Mm. Uh, the gallery director, Ingrid, very generously said that we could take over the gallery for the Architecture Weekend um, because Pier was a featured institution mm. um, because the theme was social. I think it was. I think that was the theme. So we took over the gallery and I had this idea that I wanted to work with the group to propose alternative front doors for Pier Gallery because I don't know if you've been, I mean, you've been to Pier, you yeah. know the big heavy gallery with the buzzer that you have to yeah. press to get. Yeah. Um, I was inter- we were talking about this as a group and the, and the group was saying as, as get paid gallery assistants in the space, they were saying that often that's the first obstacle for people to actually come through the doors is the fact you've got to press a buzzer and there's a camera, you know, you're being you know, beamed into a mysterious room somewhere. So we worked to suggest alternative front doors and the group came up with some really humorous and really sensitive and really, you know, wonderful alternative front doors. And then basically what I did was I went on Facebook and I put a message on like a community group around where I live in Romford and I said, does anyone have any spare doors that I could come and pick up in a van? Um, and loads of people said yeah I've got this door you can have it for this art project if you want so I drove around and picked up all these doors and then I took them into peer and then each of the they're called peer ambassadors the the young people they each had a door that they could then kind of cut up or customize or do whatever they wanted with um so that was the first outcome and then the second outcome was so this happened during the pandemic I don't know if you've seen when there's when you've noticed these private developments around London that mm. pop up all the time. They have these like photo shops of what the development's going to look like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they're really problematic, especially in places like East London, which is you know historically um, a very diverse area, uh, working class people, um, and usually these kind of supposed developments they they're full of like white middle-class professionals usually like sipping cocktails outside bars you know it's just very depressing and really out of touch with what this area historically has been about so I worked with the group to think about proposals alternative photoshop proposals for the future of Hoxton Street which is what here are you know they're based on Hoxton Street Um, And again, they came up with some really humorous and interesting um, alternative proposals for the future of Hoxton Street. And then what we did was, again, this was all during the pandemic, so we couldn't meet in person. We then put those Photoshop proposals onto Google Maps so that whenever anyone Googled, I don't know, I think there was one called HKR Development, HKR Hoxton or something like Mm. that. It It was this kind of very expensive development that was happening somewhere in the area it meant that all these images that the ambassadors had made would kind of come up instead of the images of amazing, the development. Amazing. It was so funny and we felt so like <laughs> it was so satisfying. So now if someone types in the name of this development, I remember there was one that involved dinosaurs roaming Hoxton Street and like anarchists. Yeah, amazing. That's really, so really post apocalyptic. There was one that featured a giant frog, I think. So like really kind of like humorous and quite sarcastic takes on what the future of Hoxton Street would involve. But it was interesting working in a digital kind of realm and yeah. thinking about how we could intervene in those spaces too. I mean, this is a huge topic again. We could do a whole podcast yeah. on this because I mean the number of vacant properties in London at some point. I think we've really kind of taken a very wrong turn actually in this country when it comes to the way we think about houses and mm. homes. Because I think that often properties are thought of as assets and rather than yeah, as right. homes. And so the number of vacant properties in, in London is absolutely disgusting, I think, um, because of the land value. It's just, yeah, it's just astronomical. And I think that, you know, that so again, like I could talk about this for a long while, so maybe we, we shouldn't yeah, dwell on it for too long. I'm reading a brilliant book called Who Owns England by Guy Shrubsall. And I really recommend that book because it talks about this kind of the history of who owns property and who owns land in England, specifically England within the UK. So it's, it's different in Scotland. Okay. Um, I think it's much better in Scotland, actually. Um, but you realise just how much of this country is, is still overwhelmingly controlled and it by uh the crown for one the aristocracy um wealthy oligarchs you know things being registered in tax havens and uh, 
um, offshore kind of accounts. It's quite shocking when you read through it. Um, and it's something that's really opened my eyes to the state of this, mm. this situation in this country, actually. Um, so I really, really recommend that book. So I'm, I'm in the process of reading it at the moment. I haven't even finished it, but mm. it's already been such a fascinating process. I love the film, hear her a walk along the edge of the city. And how, I know it was a commission for the Thames Estuary Festival. Uh, how did you come about this idea? Did you propose it, first of all? And and how, how did that all come about? They proposed it to me. So okay. they said, would you mind recording a walk? Um, and we were using BBC Winter Walks as a kind of inspiration for this format where you have this kind of close-up GoPro footage of me talking and then you'd have the wider drone shots of me walking in the landscape. So basically the way that we did it, I don't mind breaking it down a bit. <laughs> so I filmed the bits where I'm walking with the GoPro. I'm walking completely by myself. And then the second bit, we went back there pretty much like the next day and I wore the same clothes and we recorded the bits with the drone because it was quite a demanding process. It involved me kind of walking and the drone op uh, operator was, you know, walking quite a distance behind me so he wasn't in the same shot. Okay. But the bit where I'm walking with the GoPro, I'm completely by myself. I didn't see a single other person on that day. And, and, climbing so, and then the we wall. it to get So it looks like it's one walk, but actually it was two different days that we filmed it on. And um, how long was the whole... I know the film was about 20 minutes, isn't it? The, so how long did the whole thing take for you to um, finish? The walk itself is about two and a half hours. Um, and it's one that I've been doing... I was doing it during lockdown, but I've just been doing it... As I mentioned earlier, like I love going for walks in the landscape and just exploring um, and kind of getting lost in it, really. Um, and... This was a route that I was very familiar with. Mm. I knew what to expect from it. And it was really a pleasure to be able to kind of just sort of share my thoughts as I was walking along. And I really mm. like the fact you said it felt quite intimate, like you were walking with me, because that was the tone that we really wanted from it. There were certain points that I wanted to make, but there was lots of spontaneous things that popped into my head as I was walking too. Um, and... I think hopefully that came across too. Yep. I didn't want it to be too kind of scripted in yeah, a way. Yeah. Then you lose that kind of spontaneous feeling of, you know, you're walking along with me and we're having a chat. Yeah. Um, so I remember I prepared a couple of points. I knew what I wanted the purpose of the walk to kind of be. I, I knew what I wanted people to get from it in terms of my references and what I was thinking about and the point of it and what attracts me as an artist to those sorts of spaces, which are really, you know, odd weird quite um intimidating spaces to a lot of people i think but i think that they're really special places these are places where i can go and i can make my my videos for example mm. and i don't get disturbed i'm not going to get people bothering me with like dogs and children and and now that you mentioned there's, not, there's yeah. a lack of authority in those places which i'm really attracted to i think because there's this real sense of like freedom which i don't very often get and um and the next question is hard. What is your goal going forward? And um, as you gain more influence through your work, what would you like to focus on? I know you have a few lectures and talks coming up. That's why this question came up. Is What do you generally talk about in your lectures? What would you like to kind of focus on? And um, I know you have to prepare for, the, for them. So what is it that you kind of research on? And um, yeah, where do you think your practice will go from here? Hmm. I think that I think that it's always important to return to the question of what matters to you. Like, what do you really care about? And I think that often as you kind of go through different situations and you get new opportunities, sometimes you can end up feeling like you're deviating a bit from those kind of central concerns that really drive you. So I think that what I'm interested in is really kind of, again, go back to this idea of feminist approaches to landscape. It, it really bothers and interests and concerns me. So I think what I really want to do with my work and with my life is to sort of fully explore that and get other people talking about it. But going back to this idea of activism that we were talking about earlier, what I'm trying to figure out for myself at the moment is the context within which I want to work. You know, do I want to stay working within an art context or could my work maybe 
function in other contexts too, across other other kind of uh, platforms and other industries. It's something that I'm thinking about quite a lot at the moment and don't really have concrete answers to give you. I think being in the Constellations programme has been really eye-opening in that respect. Um, I would really like to see a change in art education. That's something very specific that bothers me. And it's something I'm going to keep talking about until I feel like something has changed for the better. Um, because it's something that really, I think it's something that in my mind is quite easily sorted out, but it just isn't. And it's not spoken about enough. So I, I really want to kind of do something about that. But yeah, the central kind of, the central concern of my work is, is feminist approaches to landscape, I think. I'd like to travel more. I think that Essex has been really important for my work and my thinking. But actually, there's this. I, I like the idea of responding to situations all over the world, um, and I really love travelling and it, you know just seeing what I bring with me and what I leave behind and what I can find in common. With the thing about Essex is it never leaves you. I have to say <laughs> that. But even when I got off the container ship and I was in Japan. I was having dinner when I was in Japan and this woman said to me, like, oh, where are you from? I said, I'm from a place called Essex in the UK. And she said, oh, my God, you're an Essex girl. And I was thinking, this is extraordinary that this stereotype has followed me all the way <laughs> to, to Japan, to the other side of the world. So I sort of feel like, um, I don't know, I, I think that I'm hoping these things won't leave me because the thing is, is that a lot of the reasons, a lot of my motivations are caused by limitations. And maybe the point that you're making is as those limitations, hopefully at some point might be lifted, will I still continue to feel that same sense of urgency to address yeah. them? And I'd like to think that I would. Um, I'd like to not struggle as much. I'd like to earn more money and I'd like to um, not feel so stressed about keeping things going because it is really, really hard. Mm. But at the same time, I do think that that has kind of also given my work a sense of urgency. I hope I don't lose that and that I can find I can find that urgency in ways that aren't stressful, if that makes any mm, sense. Mm. And what are your upcoming projects then and where can we see them? I know you have a few good lectures or um, panel discussions happening soon. So, I, well, I'm in Constellations at the moment, so that's kind of where a lot of my focus and interest and attention is, because it's it's really wonderful. Like, we've got this kind of group WhatsApp, and we're always sending each other messages and really kind of thinking quite deeply nice. about this question of art and, you know, what it means in the wider world, really. Um, so that's kind of really my focus at the moment. I do have an event coming up on Friday... What's the day today? It's, I've got an event coming up on Friday okay. at the ICA. Oh. Um, I was invited by Vlad Horvat, um, and it's a really, really interesting uh, three-day symposium all to do with choreographic devices and um, Vlad's section. So there's like different kind of chunks throughout this three-day symposium, and Vlad's section is all to do with this idea of spatial dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm which is a really interesting topic, spatial dysfunction. And she was talking about how spatial dysfunction could relate to social or political dysfunction. Um, so I've got a lot, I mean, I found it a really fascinating topic to think about, and I'm going to be contributing to that kind of theme of spatial dysfunction within this wider symposium. So that's going to be on Friday this week. And then I think, so there's... Even like today, I got an email. I might be part. I think I'm participating. I haven't like said to them yet. But I might be participating in um, a screening program called Les Jours d'Ephémères, which is all to do with ephemeral artworks oh, in Switzerland. Amazing. Um, so I might be participating in that, but like I said, I haven't like confirmed anything yet. But I just I've been talking to them a bit today. Um, so that would be wonderful if that happens. I think. Fantastic. I'm really interested in ephemeral. I'm really pleased to be that my work could be thought of within that context yeah. of ephemeral art. And what are, finally, what are the two, two books that you would recommend for our listeners to read? So I would recommend. So I mentioned earlier Guy Shrubsoul's "Who Owns England." Yeah, that's a really eye-opening book, which teaches us about land ownership in England. Um, I think that's a really important book for anyone that's basically anyone
anyone that wants to be angry about <laughs> how things carry on in the UK. Um, and Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber is a really wow. important book too. Okay. Um, he talks about how there's all these unnecessary levels of middle management that don't really need to be there and how there are loads of people that are getting paid to do nothing, basically, okay. and how people who are at the bottom who actually do the jobs, so let's say, for example, nurses or lecturers or, I don't know, library assistants, for example, people that actually do the jobs that where they come into contact with members of the public, they're the ones that quite often get their jobs cut back if there are redundancies that are being made, and the absurdity of that, really... Um, so, I mean, this is a situation that's kind of affecting all walks, I think all different industries in the UK, it's affecting education, it's affecting healthcare, it's affecting <laughs> anything I can think of, this mm. kind of unnecessary levels of bureaucracy. Mm. Uh, so that's a really important book too. Yeah, that's and, good to know. Um, I think that those are the two that I'm thinking about the most at the moment. Fantastic. I think they're really useful and quite topical and I think, um, it's uh, really important to read about, you know, what's happening to unpick all this confusion. Everything seems like a, a mesh thing. And thank you so much, Rebecca, for, <laughs> for spending this one hour with me. And uh, I look forward to seeing more of your work. And um, I might be there in the ICA. I'll look up on your um, the timetable and see exactly when. And hopefully I'll be there soon. Oh, brilliant. I mean, it'd be lovely to see you. Thanks, Rebecca.